Well, good morning and uh, happy new year to you all. Now, how many of you were up till midnight last night and still were able to get up this morning? Okay, a few of you. I appreciate that and uh, I, I know that there's no better place to be to start your new year than to be with God's people hearing God's word. So if you haven't already, you can turn to Romans uh, chapter 8. So this is the time of year where New Year's resolutions are kind of commonplace. Now granted that the calendar changing over and making changes to your life is just kind of arbitrary. I mean, yeah, it's the end of a year, but it's literally, we could uh, do mid-year resolutions. We could do, you know, quarter-year resolutions. But every new year, we get people doing resolutions. This year, a poll was taken, 52% of the polled individuals said that they wanted to exercise more as their new year resolution. 50% said eat healthier and 42% said lose weight. So I want to talk about the number one on there. I want to talk a little bit about exercise because it's a hot topic. It's obviously the one that most Americans are putting out there as their resolution this year. But in order to exercise, there is one essential thing that we all must have, and that is oxygen. We have to be able to breathe, right? We have to have lungs that can take air in and then expel the carbon dioxide. This is what exercise is all about. Now, if you know anything about exercise and working out, you know there's two kinds, right? Not, not the kind you do in your head and the kind that's real. That's not what I'm talking about. But I mean aerobic and anaerobic. Aerobic means with air. Anaerobic means without. Now when you look at those words, you go, wait a second. Anaerobic means you hold your breath? That doesn't seem like a good idea for working out. They're a little bit misleading though, right? Anaerobic just simply means with less air. Anaerobic means with more air. So for example, what you do is you work out and you get your heart rate so high that your lungs and your body demands more oxygen. And so your lungs expand, you breathe heavier, your heart pumps faster. That's aerobic exercise. There also is anaerobic exercise, lifting weights and things like that. You still have to breathe, okay, kind of a key, but it's a sustained longer period of time and it builds different kinds of muscles. Whenever you work out, you want to do both aerobic and anaerobic. Now, before you think you went to the wrong church and you're getting a TED talk about exercise this morning, let me attach this to what we're going to talk about today. To be a follower of Jesus, to be a Christian, we must constantly be breathing. Just like with exercise, we must constantly breathe throughout. There's an inhale of air and an exhale of air. As a Christian, we do this on a regular basis. The inhaling that we must have in order to be healthy is something you've heard over and over again. But today being New Year's Day is a good day for us to review. So, little mini-sermon at the start and then we'll get into the real thing. The mini-sermon is this. The inhaling of a healthy Christian life is the reading of God's Word. We must intake God's Word into us, just like we must intake air. How long could you go without oxygen? How long could you go? Can you hold your breath? Three minutes? Five minutes? Ten minutes? So ask yourself, when was the last time I sat down and read God's word? 
How long have you been holding your breath? Well, the good news is you can always start breathing right here and right now. We've been talking about this for a couple weeks now, but we've got a table out here with all sorts of real touch them Bibles, right? Not digital paper Bibles. Go out and grab one. Grab one, grab a translation you haven't read. Begin reading God's Word. A healthy Christian, a healthy human is taking God's Word in continuously. And it doesn't have to be a big deal. We have on these two tables out here, we have reading plans. Some are ambitious. You're going to read through the Bible all the way through in a year. Others are going to read through just the Gospels. But here's the thing. Any amount of breathing you can do is better than not breathing at all. And so as we look at this today, as we look at these two parts of inhaling and exhaling, the inhaling part is Scripture. See, if we think about it, a lot of us, spiritually speaking, are asthmatics. We don't inhale enough of God's Word. And see, it, it wouldn't surprise us if somebody was at the gym and they were holding their breath. They're like, I'm going to do anaerobic exercise. And so they're holding their breath and then they pass out. We would go, that's not living. It's, it's the beginning of dying. Same thing goes for us as Christians. If we're not intaking God's word, we cannot be alive. You know, each Sunday you come here to church and I tell you what I've gotten from it. And those are kind of like rescue breaths. You know, your CPR, which every few years they change it, right? Is it two rescue breaths, 25 compressions? I mean, I don't know. Ask Jackie. She'll tell us what the most recent CPR is. So you're back there nodding. But those rescue breaths, I'm not breathing pure oxygen into somebody. I'm breathing air that has some oxygen, but I've also gotten mine out of it. And so, yes, coming to church is important because you are having God's word taught to you. But it's like those rescue breaths. It's better for you to breathe on your own. And the cool part about it is as, as followers of Christ, as people who want to be a disciple of Jesus, you can open God's word on your own. The world record for holding breath was 24 minutes and three seconds. Now, the guy who did it kind of cheated. He breathed pure oxygen for two hours straight before he went under the water and held his breath. Some of us, we've gone without oxygen for a very long time. We need pure oxygen poured into us. Not so we can hold our breath for the next year, but so that we can be living for maybe the first time. So get a Bible. Get a Bible app. Get an audio Bible. Whatever you got to do. Start small, but start breathing today. All right, that's the mini-sermon. Now to the real thing. What do we do after we breathe in? We breathe out. Well, this is what we're going to focus on today, the breathing out. Because I think this is the part we have the hardest time with. What we do is we take God's word into us, and we can take it in, and we take it in, and then we breathe it out back to him. We pray it back to him. So today, as we kick off our week of prayer here at New Life, we're going to talk about prayer. It's exhaling God's word back to him. It's exhaling our words to God. And he loves to hear those prayers. J.C. Ryle says, If you tell me about a man or woman's prayer life, I would soon tell you how things are going with their soul. Prayer is our spiritual pulse. Our prayers are a measure of our spiritual health, like a spiritual health check. A person's prayer life opens a window into our hearts and shows whether our soul is healthy or dangerously ill. Now, if we're honest, Bible reading and prayer are two very difficult things for us to do. They're both very hard. We know that they're important. We, we would say they're very important. We should be doing these things. 
But we look at it and we go, I've failed so many times, there's no way I can do that. First thing we need to recognize is that resolutions are hard, right? No one's getting up today and going, you know, my New Year's resolution is to eat double the amount of fast food that I ate last year. I got to eat five times the number of donuts, right? I got to be more lazy. No, we choose something that's hard, and yes, it's imposing, but the thing about it is, is we're not on our own doing it. Not only do we have this collection of believers here, but we also have some help, and I'm going to show you that here in a minute. And honestly, of the two, probably we would say prayer is the hardest one. And, you know, one of the things about breathing in Scripture is it's going to make our prayers easier to do. But prayer is hard. It's hard to stay focused. It's hard to not repeat the same things over and over again. It's hard to not make it sound like a wish list for Santa Claus. It's just hard. So my second piece of encouragement for you is that it's hard for a very good reason. It's because our flesh wars against anything spiritual. See, our flesh doesn't want us to connect with God. It wants its own way. And so when you're feeling that resistance, it's spiritual warfare. It is your flesh. It's your sinful desires coming in and warring right there, front lines in your life to stop you from praying. No Christian in their, li their life is going to end their life and on their deathbed say, you know, I really wish I'd have prayed a whole lot less. But there are countless who would say, man, I did not pray enough. So today, I want to encourage you, as we look at prayer, my goal here, Lord willing, spirit willing, is to take the truths that we breathe in and learn how to pray them out. Because Paul's point here is that we're not by ourselves when we're praying. We've got two helpers, and these two helpers are immortal, omniscient, omnipotent God. So let's get into that. If you haven't already, be in Romans 8. So when we pray, we cry out to God. But not only do we cry out by ourselves, we have someone who resides in us who makes sure our prayers are heard and understood. And then we have someone in heaven waiting for us who goes between us and God, allowing us to petition the God of the universe. So let's get into it. The first one we're going to look at is the helper in our heart the helper in our heart. This is the Holy Spirit. Look at verse 26. Likewise, the Spirit helps us in our weakness. For we do not know what, we, what to pray for as we ought, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. So the very first thing we see is we see the Spirit helps us in our weakness. This is the perfect place for us to start. If you start in a place of strength and you stand up and go, God has to help me, you're in the exact wrong spot. The place we must start is, I can't do it. I can't solve my problems. I cannot pray the prayers I need to pray. I mean, we're honestly, he says the weakness is in that we don't know what to pray. We're honestly right there with him. Before Paul explains what all this means for us, he wants us to start with the fact that we can't do it. There is nothing we can do to pray rightly. We are weak in it, and we all get that. Paul writes in 2 Corinthians 12, My grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. That's what Christ said to him. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses, so that the power of Christ may reside in me. One commentator called this section our total inability. We are weak. We cannot do it on our own. Jesus says in John 15, I am the vine, you are the branches. 
Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. He's saying you cannot even connect. You cannot do the things you need to without me. So the first place we must start is we must start with our weakness. We can't do it. Now, for many of us, that immobilizes us. And we go, well, I can't do it, then it shouldn't be done. But Paul doesn't let us stay there. Paul takes us to the truth. He says, I have a plan. Look at verse 26 again. Likewise, the Spirit helps us in our weakness. Helps. Five little letters. Now, the Greek word there is the word sun anti lambano mai, which is 17 words, 17 letters long. It's actually a conjunction of three separate words put together. So I can't help but think our word helps might not be quite strong enough. In order to emphasize something in Greek, you add a prefix. You put a, a word on the front of it. Paul here, to emphasize it, adds two prefixes, sun and anti, right? He puts them on there. So what he's saying is bold, caps, all caps, exclamation points, pay attention to this word. So helps is definitely not strong enough. So what does that word mean? What it means literally is with, for, help. With, for, help. Now that's not a good English translation. The Holy Spirit with, for, helps us in our weakness. But let me explain to you what that means. The Spirit helps us by praying with us and for us. And this is what Paul's putting together. He's saying, as we pray, the Holy Spirit comes alongside and helps us in our prayers. Not only does the Holy Spirit do that, which is awesome, right? But he comes alongside and also prays for us as well. Why does this happen? Well, he tells us in the second sentence, for we do not know what to pray for as we ought. Paul has been in this situation. In that 2 Corinthians passage we read just a second ago, that was Paul's thorn in the flesh. Some people believe it might be eyesight. It could be that he had someone who was resisting him in the, in the Corinth church. We don't know. But he prayed for it. He didn't know how to pray for it. He didn't know what to pray. And the Lord says, don't worry about it. My strength is made. Your weakness is how I make my strength. The Philippians 1, very famous passage. You all know the first part. For to me, to live is Christ and to die is gain. But Paul keeps going. If I'm to live in the flesh, that means fruitful labor. Yet what shall I choose? I cannot tell. I'm hard-pressed between the two. My desire is to depart and be with Christ, for that is better. But to remain in the flesh is more necessary. He's saying, I don't know how to pray. I pray, take me to heaven, Lord. I'm ready to go. Or leave me here and let me do the work. I don't know which way to pray. So you know what Paul did? He just prayed, and the Holy Spirit answered it in the way he saw fit. But the Spirit himself intercedes for us. Intercedes for us. He helps us in our helplessness with groanings too deep for words. This just means deep recesses of us. The Lord can see all the way down to the floorboards inside of us. He can see all of us. He knows what we need and he's going to help us pray that, even if we can't articulate the words. It's important that we get that it says the Spirit is the one that is groaning. And this is a good time to remind ourselves that the Spirit's not a what, it's a who. He's a who, sorry. The Holy Spirit is the third member of the Trinity. He can be grieved. He can be pleased. He can ask questions. He can give us answers. And he can groan on our behalf. He can help us with our prayers. See, the thing is, this should be an encouragement because there's no magic words with God. In fact, the Spirit doesn't even need words. 
We don't know what to pray. He knows. We don't know how to pray. He does. We can't pray. He'll do it on our behalf. I think it's important for us to get. We all have people that we know or relatives or have known who are suffering from different diseases, different infirmities, dementia, Alzheimer's, things like that, where they're not able to articulate. They're not able to use their mouths anymore. Maybe you're someone here and you're thinking, hey, you know, my family, I've got the genetic markers and, and it's in my future. And that's terrifying that you can't articulate, you can't pray to your God because of this disease, because of what's happening to you. But take solace in the fact that the Lord doesn't need your mouth. The Lord doesn't need you to say the perfect prayers. The Lord doesn't need you to even be totally coherent. He knows your heart, and he will pray for you. And that's an encouragement for me in that it does not matter how good or how bad my prayers are. The Lord takes them and makes them great. It's so in keeping with his character, isn't it? Look at verse 27. For he who searches hearts knows what is in the mind of the Spirit, because the Spirit intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. He's an intercessor in the heart. He can see exactly where we're at. I like that where it says, according to the will. The New Living Translation says, in complete harmony with the will of God. So as believers, we're not left on our own to have the resources to solve our problems. Even when we don't know what to pray, the Lord, through His Spirit, does. We love that. In harmony with God's will. So this passage here is to really counterbalance in us when we go, I don't know how to pray. I don't know what to pray. We just need to pray, and the Lord will take that to the ear of the Father. Now, I like to ask questions of the Bible, and at this point, I, I thought, okay, God, is this for everybody, or is this only for your disciples, for your followers? Do, do people who don't know you, do you answer, do you hear their prayers? Jeremiah 14, 12 says, Though they fast, I will not hear their cries. Talking of the wicked. And though they offer burnt offering and grain offering, I will not accept them. So does God hear the prayers of people who are not following him? Well, the answer is yes. He's omniscient. He can hear any prayer, even those who are unuttered prayers. But the answer here is, is when he says he will not hear them or not accept them means I will not answer them the way they want. And it's important that we get that, that 1 John 5 tells us if we ask anything according to his will, he hears and answers. So for those who are ignoring Christ, who have not submitted to him, they have no idea what God's plan is. They have no idea what God's will is. So for them, prayers are just shots in the dark. They're just praying, I need this job, I need this, I need that, I need this, help. And God in his grace, sometimes... Those things match up with his will, and he answers them. But what a, what, a, what a terrible spot to be in. I don't know what to pray, so I'm just going to pray, and I hope that the big man upstairs is listening, or some nonsense like that. Where, on the other side, those who are followers of Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior, not only do they know that their prayers will be heard because of Jesus, but they're also praying in line with God's will, and so the prayers match up, and those are the prayers he's going to answer. So if you're here today and you've not submitted to Christ, I'm not saying don't stop praying, but I am saying there's one prayer that must start everything. And that's the prayer of repentance. That's the prayer he always 
hears and always answers. When you pray, Lord, I am a sinner, I need your covering, I need the covering of Christ on me, that's the prayer he always hears and always answers, and always in the affirmative. So the first thing we see is that we have a helper. This helper is with us, praying beside us, and praying for us. So now, what is the ground? What is the foundation for this truth? Well, Paul tells us in verse 28, We know that for those who love God, all things work together for good, for those who are called according to his purposes. God works in everything, not just isolated incidents, in everything for our good. Now, this does not mean that everything that happens to us will be good. What it means is the evil that the world and the flesh and the enemy throw at us, he turns for our ultimate good. And sadly, we don't get to see what that looks like many times. And we've talked about that before when we've talked about Job and Lamentations and some of the things that have happened in the last few years. But notice that this promise, it says, those who love God. Again, this is not a promise for everybody. It's for those who love God. Notice he doesn't say, for those who believe God. So what does it say? It says, even the demons believe that God exists and shudder. It's not enough to just go, I I think there's a God up there, so he's got to keep this promise. No, it says love. It says those who believe in God. It doesn't say that. It says those who love God. Tim Keller helps us with this. He says, love in the Bible is never merely theoretical or intellectual, nor is it merely sentimental or emotional, nor is it merely duty or will-based. Love is setting the heart on God so that in all you do, you determine to please him. So he's saying, I will work all things for the good of those who are determined to please me, who love me, who want me. Now you look at that and you go, I just, I'm having a hard time seeing that. I mean, you're telling me that there's this plan and there's this providence in my life. I'm not seeing it. I'm praying for miracles and I have never once seen a miracle. And I would say, nonsense. I would say, that's not true. Don't speak those lies to yourself. Because if you're here today and you have Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, there's one miracle you've all experienced. Because a dead person is now living. A person who was dead in their sins, a child of wrath, is now a child of God. That's a miracle. I mean, that's a miracle that's so outrageous that Hallmark wouldn't make that into a fairy tale. (laughs) To go from a child of wrath to a child of the God of the universe. You were dead in your sins. And if God can do that, there's a lot more in store. So he wants us to make sure we understand not only the ground from which we build off of, but also our place in Christ. Who are we in Christ? So look at verses 29 and 30. For those whom he, that's God, those who God foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son, in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. Now, let's be honest. This is a huge passage. This is too big for one sermon. As a matter of fact, if I were going to preach through this, I'd probably get four words in and have a sermon on foreknew, and then a sermon on predestined, and then conform. And it would just take a long time. I'm in good company, though. Martin Lloyd-Jones, the doctor turned preacher, did 400 sermons on the book of Romans. 250 of them were chapters 5 through 8. As a matter of fact, those two verses, he did 17 one-hour sermons on. So there is some depth to this passage. 
And there is a lot there. And those are all available online. You can go read them and listen to them. So we're going to take just a really quick look at this. So what is God's ultimate goal? What is this, this little section all about? Besides giving people things to debate in theology classes, it's telling us the ultimate goal is for us to be made like Christ. We become more and more like him. We become our true selves, who we are in Christ. But I think there's more to this. Romans 8 affirms that God started it, God did it, and God will bring it to completion. Do you see that there? Look at it. This is called the golden chain of redemption. It's a very famous passage. What part in this do we play? Where does it say, you did what? Is it there? Does anybody see it? It's because it's not there. How, how, how could you foreknow God when you didn't exist? How could you tell God to make you a part of his family before you were a glimmer in your grandparents' eyes? How did we call out to God if we were dead? Did we make ourselves right with God by all the actions we did, this justification that he says? And even more so, how on earth do we glorify ourselves? That means take us up and give us heavenly bodies. No resolution's gonna do that. So our response here is the only thing that we do. Look at how much God has done. One pastor writes this, life often feels like defeat, doesn't it? So Paul wants us to feel something else. It's as if Paul invites us to bend down with him and touch our hands to the bedrock underneath us, the absolute certainty of God's eternal love toward us. And not only touch it, but to stamp on it with our feet to feel its absolute solidity so that we become convinced that nothing will ever separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus. So we've got the helper in our hearts. We've got all of this foundation that we're on. Now he gets to the best news possible. It's the cherry on top, our helper in heaven. Look at verse 31. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? So he's going to ask six questions here, five questions here. The first one is a summary question or the summation question. He says, all this stuff, the Spirit helps us in our weakness, God is the one who saves us, what do we do now? This is Paul's opening question. I love how Paul does this. He asks these questions and, and the responses are in the next question. So he goes to the next question. If God is for us, who can be against us? This is the opposition question. This is the real persecution question. This isn't the, that person took my parking spot at Fred Myers. This is the, who's going to come after you and put you to death for standing for Jesus? Couldn't he have worded this a little differently? Couldn't he have just said, who can be against us? We would go, well, that's a long list. We've got these people and this people and this group. But instead, he starts us off with a correction of our mindset. He said, if God is for us, who could be against us? Now, that word if there gets a little weird like, well, we don't know, is God for us? That's not what that means. What it means is because or since, since God is for us, who can be against us? He's setting the stage. He's saying in the midst of everything that's happening, God is for us. So even if people come against us, God is for us. We have the, we have the God of the universe on our side. It implies a negative answer. No, no one can come against us. If we are in Christ, God is for us. Because God is always for his son. You see that? So God is always for Jesus. There is not a moment where he's not for Jesus and doing exactly what Jesus wants. So when we come and we're in Christ, we have that same position. 
that Jesus has. That's what it meant earlier when it said in verse 30, be the firstborn among many brothers. We are in Christ. We are a part of the family. We'll see this more clearly in 34. Let's get to 32. He who did not spare his own son but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? So this is the provision question. Will God provide? If so many people are against us, but God is for us, how's God going to take care of us? This is very similar to what Mary asked of the angel in Luke chapter 1. He says, God the Father is in control. The same he that was in verses 29 and 30 that did all of that work before we were even born, that same he is the same he in verse 32. And he says, I've given you the greatest thing, and since you have the greatest thing, I have no problem with the lesser things. I've taken care of your biggest of big problems, your, your, your separation from me, and now I can take care of the easy stuff. And remember, though, this is for those who are in Christ. It's for those who've submitted and said, he is my Lord. I am submitting to that call. Verse 33, who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. So here we get our fourth question. This is the prosecution question. Notice it's a future tense. It's saying, in the future, when I have to stand before the judge. This is talking about judgment day. Every single one of us will stand before God and our sins will be laid out in front of us. So he's saying, who can bring a charge? And I don't know if you're, if you're like me, but I go, wow, there's going to be a long list of people that can bring charges against me. There are going to be lots of charges that can come against me. But Paul adds this next sentence, it is God who justifies. Also a future tense. It's God who goes, I'm declaring you not guilty. I'm declaring you righteous. Not only just you're not guilty of your sins, but I'm going to declare you as holy as Jesus. He's declaring it, meaning there's no charge against us. This is what we talked about last week. Romans 3, 26 says, this was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be the just and the justifier of the one who has faith. God is the one who comes in and declares us righteous. Why? Because of what Jesus did on the cross. Look at verse 34. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who's at the right hand of God, who is indeed in, is interceding for us. So we get our final question, the condemnation question. This is a present tense. So he's saying, who right now can condemn us? Who can bring a charge against me? So our future judgment, standing in front of God, is assured. But right here, right now, who can condemn us? And the answer is the accuser. In the Bible, the devil is called the accuser. And we see that he has, for however this all works, and it's not all clear, but he has access to accuse us before God. You can't bless them. You can't take care of them. Look how bad they are. But we have one in heaven who intercedes on our behalf, defending us from the charges. And so Paul wants us to see this clearly. So he stops his questions here before picking them back up in verse 35. And he says, let me show you Jesus. He's taking Jesus out of the box and he's showing you all the sides. So the first one, Christ Jesus is the one who dies. This points to the cross. This points to him bearing the sins on the cross. When Jesus says, Lord, take this cup from me, he's not talking about the death that he's going to die. Yes, it was horrible, and the cross was abominable, and they made up new words to say how bad the cross was, and the scourging, and all of that. 
But that was only a small sliver of what made the cross terrible. It was the weight of all the sins of the world placed on Jesus. And that's what he felt. But that's, he's our scapegoat. That's why he was there. He took them from us. He was the Lamb of God who takes away our sins, like John the Baptist said. So how do we know that it worked? Well, the second thing he says is more than that. So more than dying, who was raised? This is the verification. This is the, 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 the check mark. This is the yes, it was accepted. It's valid. Remember that word propitiation came up last week. It means a payment that satisfies. So what it's saying is when God raises Jesus from the dead, the payment was accepted and it was complete. Your sins were laid on him and God accepts Jesus' sacrifice. God's stamp of approval. Now right there, that's great. That's the best news in the world, but it only gets better. He says not only was he raised, but who is at the right hand of God. In Acts 1, Jesus ascends back up to heaven, and he sits at the right hand of God. This means he's at the highest authority. He is equal with God. He is sitting there with God. What's he doing? Is he just sitting back, kicking back, you know, just enjoying God's company? No. Paul wants us to see he is interceding for us. Again, that same word, intercede. Continually interceding for us. This is a present tense word that means forever going and going and going. So what does interceding mean? Interceding means to go between. It's to reconcile two groups. Uh, probably a better word here would be the word pleading. But when we hear the word pleading, it's kind of like, please don't kill me or something like that from a movie. Okay? But this is actually a legal term. When you, when you, have, when you have lawyers, they're pleading their case with the judge. It's an act of reconciling two parties that are aggrieved. So just like in a court of law, the law is represented by the state and the accused is represented by the defense attorney. And in this case, Jesus is our defense attorney and his record is better than Perry Mason's. It's better than Matlock's. It's better than the best law lawyer on the best law show you've ever seen. It's a perfect record. And he has won every case. Now what is Jesus arguing? Is he going, well, you know, they didn't really mean it. They didn't really mean to sin. Did they go, you know what, they're good in their heart, right? Or do they go, well, they've done a lot more good than bad. Or maybe the one that everybody loves to say, which is, hey, they're better than that guy. You see the next guy coming in? Man, he's a train wreck. This kid's way better than that one. No. The one thing that Jesus brings forward is the merit that he earned via his life, death, and resurrection. So when Satan goes, you can't bless that one, Jesus goes, they're mine. My death covers that. You can't talk to me that way. I'm the son of God. Paul says that Jesus is pleading for us in heaven. God has acquitted us and has removed our sins. So it is not God that accuses us, it is Satan. And Jesus, our defense attorney, is winning. So the answer to all these questions is no one can. There is no one who can do it. Jesus has done it. It is finished. It is done. One author writes, of course, the devil wants us to feel condemned. For him, a good day is dragging us down into despair over our sins. Even our hearts accuse us, whispering to us that people like us have no right to enjoy God, that we deserve to be miserable, that the only right thing is to live forever under the cloud of our sins, that it would be hypocritical for us to enjoy God, that we have cheap grace and that we should pay our dues, and so on and so on. And here's the thing. There's a half-truth in that. We do deserve 
to be miserable. Our best day on earth earned us enough sins to deserve hell. And yet, that's not where it stops, does it? We have to get how bad we are. We have to get our weakness. We have to get where we started from because if we don't see that, we can't see how amazing and how this news is good news because in Christ, God gives us what we don't deserve. Sin does, what sin does the cross not overcome? Our Savior raises his wounded hands and our judge confirms Christ's merit and he says, case closed dismissed. So how do we respond when, when, when we have these accusations that come up? Well, I love what John Bunyan had his character Christian in the Pilgrim's Progress say. When Satan's accusing him, he says, all this is true and much more that you have left out. But the prince whom I serve and honor is merciful and ready to forgive. Besides these sins possessed me in my own country, I've groaned under them and I'm sorry for them and I have repented and obtained a pardon from my prince. See, when, when we have these accusations that we bring up on ourselves or the world brings on us, we can go, no, no, it's way worse than you think. If it was dependent on me, there was no way that I could be in God's presence or anywhere near him. But because of Christ, my past, my present, and my future sins are covered. See, our disobedience comes from not trusting that God is true to what he's saying. It's not trusting him. So faith is not that we earn something and we deserve these prayer requests. We deserve none of our prayer requests to be answered. But Christ does. And so when we're in Christ, he is the one that provides the means by which our prayers get heard and get answered. So the good news is, is when we call out to the Father, Jesus' name takes the prayers. Spurgeon writes this, Christ did not love you for your good works. They were not the cause of his beginning to love you. So he does not love you for your good works even now. They are not the cause of his continuing to love you. He loves you because he loves you. So we, if we are in Christ, if we are his children, we have a positional righteousness. It grants us standing before God. All the rights that Jesus has to be at the right hand of God and sit there and have God's ear are given to us. It reminds me of that famous picture of JFK Jr., He's playing underneath the, uh, the, 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 the big desk in the Oval Office. And his dad is there working, doing whatever he's doing. And JFK Jr. has access to his father that world leaders would die for. But he has that access. And the same goes for us. God hears us. God has us as a part of his family. It also means that with that spirit living in us, that we have a personal righteousness. He is working in us to make us more like him. And as we become more like Christ, the more our prayers begin matching up exactly with God's will and our prayers are answered regularly. The death of Jesus purchases the answers to the prayers. We were children of wrath, now we're children of mercy. So I want to return back to where we started about the exercises, aerobic and anaerobic. I told you, aerobic exercise makes the body crave oxygen, crave air, thirst, hunger. Your body goes, I must have more. Anaerobic exercise still requires air, but the demand isn't as intense. So a good way of thinking about this, for some of you, you're coming off of your toughest year you've ever had. Maybe you've lost a loved one, maybe you've lost a job, maybe you've lost a child. Whatever has happened, you have come off of a terrible 
terrible year. Our world says when the toughest times happen, you need more vacation, you need more you time, you need to go buy yourself a truck, whatever that thing may be, the world's solutions will fail. No, the stress of your life, the stress on your life is like the stress of aerobic exercise. You need to take in more of God's word and expel more prayers. That's the purpose of it. That stress on your life goes hand in hand with what God has provided, his means. Now, some of you will go through a hard time this year. There's no, there's no sugarcoating about it. Some of you are going to have rough times this year. But the thing about it is, is that these unexpected, unplanned stresses in your life are providing you with an opportunity to know more of him. So right now, you can do the prep work, getting yourself ready for that by inhaling and exhaling. People don't train for a marathon by going, hey, there's a marathon this Saturday. I guess I'm going to go run. Don't do that. Easy way to get to the hospital. So begin expanding your lung capacity now. Take in that oxygen and expel it out through prayer. The rest of us, maybe we're in that no stress time. Maybe things are going well. Doesn't mean you get to stop breathing. It means you need to keep breathing and you need to pray and read and pray and read some more. Because just like with exercise, what you do in those down times translates directly into those stress times. The things you do in that anaerobic state when there's not the stress on your lungs is what makes your lungs able to handle it when it comes. So right here, right now, if you are in this blessed time where the Lord has things going well for you, you need to breathe in scripture and you need to exhale prayer. It is the only way. We need this constant breathing. Even if you don't breathe well, you need to start now. Read your Bibles. Breathe it back to him. Start simple. Read a psalm a day. Read a chapter in Matthew. Read a, read a verse. Start somewhere. And then thank the Lord for what he just told you in that passage. Every verse is about God, Jesus, or the Holy Spirit. Take it back and, and reflect that back to him. And before you know it, you'll be breathing on your own, and you'll be big, expansive breaths and you'll be truly living. Let's pray. <clears throat> Heavenly Father, thank you for your word. Lord, thank you that your word does not return void. Thank you that your word provides us with life. Lord, we need so much more life, whether we have been a, a believer for decades or, or we are just trying this out and we don't know whether we want to believe in you and follow you and love you. Lord, help us to not settle for holding our breath. Help us to not settle for this slowly dying of not breathing you in. So Lord, I pray that you would stir up in us the ability and the desire to breathe in your word and breathe those prayers back to us. Thank you that you sent your spirit to fill in the gaps when we can't do it. And thank you for sending your son so that we know our prayers will be heard. In Jesus' name, amen.